to lead us in a word of prayer, praying for these children. There were a lot of them. We had a lot of visitors, and uh, I paid for that. But uh, I still smell whipped cream in my, if I think about it. <clears throat> you can't get that smell out of your nose. But, hey, we took one for the team, okay? Let's pray together, okay? Father, what price is too high to pay than to plant seeds of the gospel in the hearts of children? And we don't know what's going to happen in their lives. We don't know what they're going to go through. We don't know what trials they're going to face. We don't know what pathway their life is going to take them down, but you do. And our prayer is, Lord, that every one of them would come to the place where they would repent of their sins and they would believe the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that they would never forget what they learned on that first day about how you operate by grace, not on works. I pray that they would remember what they learned about people, that all of us are sinners who fall short of the glory of God and our sin is going to be punished and it has to be paid for by a perfect sacrifice. I pray that they would remember what they learned about God on the third day. That there's only one God, the true and the living God, which is you. And there are a lot of people who claim to be God and a lot of idols who claim to be gods and a lot of philosophies who try to take your place in our life and society, but none can do that. There's only one God. I pray that they would remember it. And I pray that they would remember what they learned on Thursday, that this wonderful God who created everything sent his one and only son to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father and will return one day. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can come into your presence. And then I pray that what they learned on that last day about faith as they studied the Philippian jailer's conversion. And I pray that they would come to the point of actually placing their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I pray, Lord, that <clears throat> while we had a lot of fun and we had a lot of good times, may what really matters be what remains in their heart and in their lives. And may the living Word of God, by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, bring them to know the Son of God so that they can know God the Father and receive the gift of eternal life. And we pray all of this now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, <clears throat> talk about something. Oh, kids, you can go to Children's Church. And if you're a visitor, you're, feel free to send your children with us. If you want to meet with the leaders, they'll be right outside here, and you can see exactly where your kids are going to go. Thank you, Brother Dale. I uh, mentioned in the opening of the service how absolutely amazed I was with what happened in the Supreme Court uh, decision um, on Friday. <clears throat> a little bit of background. When I think about abortion, it's a little bit of an emotional issue. <clears throat> My little brother, his birth mother was 16 when he was born. And uh, it was in Texas in 1966. And I shudder to think what would have happened if he had been born to a 16-year-old after 1973. He wouldn't be here, most likely. 
And uh, so when I think about that, and I think about adoption, and I think about um, all of those things, I think about abortion, and I think about how that could have touched our family. We probably wouldn't have known about it, but it would have touched our family in a very real way. He would have been the perfect candidate for that. But uh, as a kid who grew up in church, I don't ever remember when I was younger ever hearing the word abortion ever mentioned from a church pulpit. You say, well, that was probably just your your church. Okay, let me remind you, I was a military brat. I was in 12 different schools from the time I was in kindergarten until I graduated from high school. We were in a church in every town and every post where we were stationed. We were not just a part of the chapel. We were a part of a local Southern Baptist church. Never heard anything about it. Didn't know what it was. Somewhere, I don't remember where, uh, when it was. It would have been somewhere around the 1973 Supreme Court decision. Now, in 73, I was 13, and we were living in San Francisco, and this memory that I have is before then. So probably things were heated up, and there were people involved in this issue even before the Supreme Court decision. I remember seeing a station wagon. It was one of those big, long station wagons where in the very back front of the tailgate, the seat was that faced backwards, remember those, with the wood panels on the side? And I saw a bumper sticker, and it looked like uh, dripping blood, and it said, abortion is murder. I had no idea what it was talking about. And I asked somebody what that was, and they go, oh, don't worry about it, that's a Catholic issue. That's the way it was looked at back then. I've always often wondered why the Southern Baptist Convention, we are the largest Protestant or non-Catholic denomination in the United States, and we were back then, and probably that was our heyday somewhere around there. Why is it that we had such little impact on those kind of things? Well, first of all, I think that that statement, that's a Catholic issue, probably entered into it. But then I found out that... Um, the one who was the chairman of our, then it was called the Christian Life Commission, uh, now it's called the ERLC, and um, the man who was the president of that, funded by our cooperative program dollars, his name was Foy Valentine, he was a signer in the early 70s of the Abortion Rights League documents. In other words, he was pro-abortion. And so this agency that was supposed to speak for Southern Baptists on um, ethics and social issues and religious liberty issues, those type of things, had actually signed the document supporting the abortion of unborn babies. Well, no wonder we weren't speaking up about it. So I didn't really hear anything about it. I didn't hear much about it uh, even as I became a teenager. We didn't talk about those kind of things. And it wasn't until the campaign uh, leading up to the 1980 presidential election, I went to a meeting and they had different presidential candidates speak. It was uh, kind of the beginning of my interest in all of that. And that's when I heard and found out what abortion was. I don't think even up to that point, I really got it or understood what it was all about. 
And it was appalling. And it was about that time that I found out that there were candidates who were pro and candidates who were um, anti-abortion during that time. The moral majority and some of those kind of things. The Christian right was coming on. And I might have some different feelings about some of the way things were done and the emphasis and that kind of thing. But I'll say this, it awakened me. And it caused me to think about who I would vote for. It caused me to think about the people that were running. It caused me to think far beyond party lines and tradition and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, those were the things that I learned. And so I had an awakening somewhere around 1980. And uh, that has influenced me uh, ever since. And this is uh, a, a season and a day that, I'll be honest with you, I never thought I would live to see. I never thought it would actually happen, but it did, and in that we rejoice. But I felt like this is a good time since it is on the hearts and minds of so many people, protesters and others, as well as supporters, that we probably ought to take a little bit of time and talk about it from a theological and a uh, biblical situa- uh, standpoint here. And so I, I want to uh, put this into uh, five different categories here. And there'll be scripture references underneath each one of these that you can write down and you can look up because you've got to be willing to defend this. And the reason is this is going to be hotter, maybe hotter than ever as an issue. Okay. Because people are upset about all of this. People misunderstand all of this. And the battle is not over. Okay, let, let me make something very clear to all of you that is not clear to America. This does not end abortion. And I think probably for a lot of my life, even after, after I became aware of this, I was under the impression that if Roe v. Wade were ever under, uh, overturned, that would end abortion. It does not end abortion. It just simply sends it to the states. Now, some states, like Missouri, already had a trigger law in effect that the moment that ruling came out, abortion became illegal in Missouri. We have something similar here in Oklahoma. I don't know exactly when it takes effect, but it'll be uh, very, very severe. And there are states like ours that will basically ban abortion. But states like California are not going to. States like New York and others are not going to. In fact, there have been uh, major corporations that have even said, if you live in a state that doesn't allow abortion, we as a corporation will pay for you to go to a state that does offer abortion so that you can have it at our expense. Now, why would an Amazon or something like that, why would they want to do that? Economic is all it is. You say, well, doesn't that cost them money? Yeah, it does, but it's cheaper than paying for a new family member's insurance policy. It's cheaper than uh, going through all of the health risks that might come with uh, a problem that comes up with a childbirth. That does happen. And so it's cheaper for them to say, no, no problem. Just go ahead and we'll fly you and take you to a place where you can have the baby aborted and then come back. And then you can go back to work for us and you don't have family encumbering you. You don't have medical bills encumbering you. And we don't have to pay for another person on your insurance policy. It's not really 
the way that it seems. And in this whole issue, all you ever had to do was follow the money. If there were no money in abortion and the abortion industry, it really wouldn't be an issue, but there's a lot of money in it, and uh, that still will be the case. And so I want to encourage you to be involved if you're not involved, to be praying, and also to maybe think about volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center. Because when you have uh, states like ours, where it's going to be, you're going to be hard-pressed to get an abortion legally in a state like Oklahoma, there's still going to be young ladies getting pregnant because the immorality rate in our state is very high. And uh, what are we going to do? They're going to have to have some help. I think crisis pregnancy centers are going to become more relevant now than maybe they've ever been. And I think we ought to support them now more than we ever have because this is a great opportunity to, uh, again, save lives and also to see souls redeemed. And so uh, we're going to have to uh, be involved in those kind of things. So anyway, that's where my heart is. And uh, let's... let's, uh, Get on with the uh, message here. I know you're probably saying, move on, buddy. Uh, Number one, I want to uh, tell you what's on my heart is that there's a privilege and a stewardship of freedom. It matters if you vote or if you don't vote. There are some times where a no vote is actually a vote for a bad candidate, a bad person. And so you always ought to be informed and you ought to exercise your right to vote. God gave us the freedom that we have in this country. God gave us the rights and the privileges that we have. And so to squander those, to not be informed when you go into the voting booth, as we say, or to just say, ah, it doesn't really matter, I think uh, in the last election, there were something like 54 million evangelicals, evangelical Christians, did not bother to vote. Boy, if we could just get them to vote, it would change everything and change the outcomes of what we're doing. If we could understand that. I came to the realization decades ago that voting for the president is a big deal. But then understanding that the president, he may only serve one term if elected. He may serve two terms if reelected, but that's it. But the people that he would nominate to the Supreme Court if they were appointed by the Senate, they will serve for life. And a lot of times, whatever you may think of the candidate or the person who is eventually elected as president... Far more important are the people that he nominates for courts like the Supreme Court. And so we've got to think. And what we said in Sunday school, we've got to think, you know, Peter's problem was he didn't think theologically. Matthew 16 didn't continue on into when the people asked him about his master paying the temple tax. He didn't think and he just answered impulsively. It wasn't a horrible answer. And it was innocent, but it was wrong. And that's the problem we have. We don't take what we have in the Bible and in our quiet time and in our Sunday school and in our church services and let that control the way that we think when we go out into the world. That's supposed to control everything, and it certainly ought to control our politics. We don't sell out to an elephant. We don't sell out to a donkey. We find candidates that reflect the closest 
thing to the Bible as we can find. And uh, I thought about Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, and this is talking about spiritual freedom, but I think the principle applies to even our political freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What a verse for our nation. We've taken our freedom and said, I'm free, I can do anything I want. Well, not without consequences and not without facing the judgment of God. And so what we do and how we use our freedom and how we vote and how we act and how we live is supposed to actually be an act of service. Vote, you say, well, I don't really care. It's not about you. We want to vote as a service to our nation, as a service to upcoming generations because those members of the Supreme Court may live a long, long time. And if they're good people, praise God, they'll rule rightly. If they're not, then Lord help us because they'll rule in wrong ways for a long time. And this is where the people of God, we've got to think about all of this. This is a stewardship that God has given us. Now, the other thing that comes to my mind as a result of this is what I call the product of persistence. We live in an age where, um, speaking of Steve Elkins, I remember uh, years ago when we were talking and uh, microwaves were fairly new and somewhat expensive in those days. And he said, you know what the definition of impatience is? And I said, what? And he goes, it's when you have a microwave oven. I think it was an Amana radar range that uh, he had. He said, and you've got this, and you get really ticked off because you have to cook your hot dog for 15 more seconds. That's the way we live, isn't it? We want everything, and we want it now. I want it all, and I want it now. In other words, we're still emotionally about two years old. We haven't really grown up. We don't know what persistence is. We don't know what patience really is. Now, our grandparents did. Very little in their life was instantaneous. They didn't get instant gratification. They had to wait for it. You planted a crop, you had to wait for the harvest to come in. And if all went well and you worked hard, then you would enjoy it and could throw a party. But if not, then it might not happen. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, one generation plants the tree, the next generation enjoys the shade. And we don't like to wait. What good does it do to plant a tree if I don't get anything out of it, if I don't enjoy it? And a lot of people are like that in their walk with God. I prayed for this, I didn't get anything, so what's the point in going on? In fact, you're not alone. The book of Malachi is written to you. People said it's a vain thing to serve God. In other words, I didn't get anything out of it. It didn't do anything for me. What, what, what's he doing up there anyway? And so we look at this thing and say, if I can't get instant gratification, what good is it? Folks, Roe versus Wade was ruled upon by the Supreme Court in January of 1973. It was a different time. It was a different generation. It was a different era. It was a different world. But through time and prayer, a lot of giving, through persistence, through education, 
through all of the things that the pro-life movement has been doing and churches have been doing this whole time, nearly 50 years later, the unthinkable has happened and it's been overturned. What does that tell us? It's the little things you do that you don't feel anything, you don't see anything, you don't sense anything, you don't get any feedback, you don't get any response from it, and it may be a powerful thing in the next generation. And this is why we do things like putting time and effort and money into things like VBS. Well, a lot of those kids will never come to our church, but is that really the issue? Are we doing it for what we get out of it? Well, we didn't see any members come because of this, so why do we do it? Is that really, really the issue? Or are we going to be the people of God who are going to be planting trees so the next generation can enjoy the shade? There's another old proverb that says, When is the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. When is the next best time? Today. And we've got to think in terms of the future. When it comes to battling sin in your life, what do you do? Do you battle it today? And then if you fall tomorrow, go, well, it's not worth it. This is not a short-term thing. It's not a sprint, brothers. It's a marathon that we're running. And we grow and we learn by increments. You don't get it all in one setting. You don't just get zapped and now you know the scripture. You've got to read it and study it over and over and over. And it's a cumulative effect. And so much of that is true in society and in our ministries and in being salt and light and in our witnessing. We very rarely get to witness to somebody and they burst out into tears and fall on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? That would be wonderful. But it doesn't happen very often. <clears throat> it's a slow planting and watering and then a reaping process that comes along. It's the kind of thing that is shown up even in our money. We want instant things, and so we go into debt at a high rate of interest on a credit card instead of thinking, if I can make credit card payments with interest, gee, why couldn't I make a payment that gains me interest and save my money and not be in debt? But we don't think that way. And in this age of instant gratification, I'm afraid that even as Christians, we think, if I prayed about it one time and nothing happened, I guess it wasn't God's will. And we are here to be salt and to be light on this earth. And a lot of our battles are not going to be won today or tomorrow. And we may not even live to see the battle won. But that doesn't mean it's a loss. Because 50 years from now, when you're looking down from heaven, you may hear the word that there was a great victory won and that your prayers were answered. There are some people that have gone on to glory out of our church that when I think of them, I don't pray to them, but I pray to the Lord and I say, Father, will you answer what they prayed for us and for our church? Would you continue to answer that prayer and bring it into fruition because this is a long-term thing that we are facing and that's why we want to do our best and do what we do with excellence particularly as it pertains to children 
Can I fuss? Children, Sunday school teachers, people that work in preschool and nursery, you ought never be late for church. You ought never be late for your class because about the time you are, somebody's going to be there to drop their little child off and that child will either be left alone in an empty room or the parents will say, well, maybe this isn't the place for us. We need to do it with excellence. Your room ought not be untidy. It ought to be straightened up, everything put away, fresh stuff on the walls, and you ought to be there greeting those kids with a smile. Because they may not understand everything that they're getting, but they know how they feel. And we need to make sure that we're doing the right thing because you remember what Jesus said about stumbling a little one. And you ought to be the kind of person that when those little children come to church, they see you here. You're not an absentee. You're not an every so often person. You're not a Sunday morning only person. You're having an effect and you are shepherding them and you need to be faithful in all of that. This is why it's important that as a church we pray for teenagers. We pray for children. We pray for preschoolers. We pray for our nursery. And we work in the nursery as well. Why? It's all a part of this long-term seed planting process that may not bear fruit for a long time. But oh, is it ever worth it as we saw in the ruling this past Friday. The book of Proverbs 24, 16. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. You know what is characteristic of people who know the Lord? That they never stumble? No, that's not what it says. They get up. They get up, they get up, they get up. It's the wicked who give up, it's the righteous who get up. Can I say that again? It's the wicked who give up, it's the righteous who get up. And how many times do we get up? One more time than is necessary. That's all it takes. So if you fall seven times, get up eight. If you fall ten times, get up eleven. Just make sure that you give up. And Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And that's our problem. We don't really believe that. And yet it's so true. Let me give you, thirdly, a scriptural perspective uh, on the whole thing of abortion because it's still going to be around. It's not going away and the battle is still going to continue. What does God think about children in the womb? Well, these are some things that um, don't pertain maybe directly to it. There's not a like regulations 510 thou shall not get an abortion. It's not like that. It's getting principles. For example, Amos 1.13, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not revoke his punishment. Why? And here he says it. Because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. Well, we would never do anything like that, would we? I wonder how many babies were murdered in their mother's wombs for economic reasons both with the abortion provider or maybe the people that said, oh, we can't afford another child, so let's just get rid of it. 
And that's what he was talking about here, the people of Ammon, because they wanted to expand their borders and their economic things. They were taking pregnant women and killing their babies. God apparently doesn't like that. The Bible also says, uh, speaks of the Lord opening and closing the womb. For example, Genesis 20:18, For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You can read the whole story if you want to. But notice it was the Lord who closed the wombs. And then in Genesis 29, 31, And when the Lord saw that Leah, Jacob's first wife, was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, you can read the context of that story, but notice the Lord opened the womb. There is no accidental pregnancy. That's God that brings that child into existence. And you say, well, it was a product of sin. Yeah, but the child didn't do that. The child is innocent. And that child is created by God in the mother's womb. Psalm 139.13. You're familiar with this. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Where did the Lord do it? Not after birth. Not at a certain point in the process. But in the mother's womb. A living being there. In Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying... Therefore, I formed you in the womb. I knew you before you were born. I sanctified you. I ordained you, before birth now, a prophet to the nations. I don't know. That, these verses just seem to scream to me. That is a real human being inside of the womb at conception. And that life begins at conception and is recognized by God. And if God recognizes it, we certainly should. It is spoken about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 verse 15. For uh, of this prophecy about him. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Life before birth. Life at conception. Luke 1, again about John the Baptist. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. Isn't that something? They're alive. They're human. I mean, sometimes I wonder when people talk about these kind of things. When, when do they become alive? When do they become alive? Well, it's a living thing because it's growing. It's a very short period of time. You can actually hear the heartbeat. And then these verses certainly point to that as well. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, and named my name. If you don't like your name, take that up with God. He's the one who named you, wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life, right? But notice how the Lord said, you called me from the womb. This is both Old and New Testament, folks. Exodus 21, 22 it says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, 
Uh, maybe it throws her into early labor or something like that, but they're born and they're safe. The one who hid her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, the baby is harmed, then you shall pay, ready for this? Here's how serious God is, life for life, eye for eye, Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Gee, I wonder what the Lord was trying to say there. It's so unclear. He considers it murder. Is that right? So should we. So should we. And number four, I want to talk about the protection of biblical morality. Do you realize that with all of the 60-some million babies that have been murdered in the place they should have been the safest, their mother's womb. Do you realize that in all of that, that abortion would be virtually, not completely, but virtually a non-issue if people would just do things God's way? The percentage of abortions that are performed by married women, very, very low. See, the Bible is clear that we're living in an age that we are destroying ourselves. And one of the ways we are destroying ourselves is uh, sex before marriage. I was listening to a podcast the other day. And of course, uh, I'm long, long past the dating scene. But they were talking about how it's common now. Listen to this, parents and grandparents. It is common. It's not rare. It is common for teenagers to go out on a date, the first date, have a sexual encounter to determine if they want to continue dating or not. You think we have things out of whack? The Bible says that when two people start dating that they first of all ought to be united in their spirit. Don't date unbelievers. Don't allow your children to date unbelievers. They have to be spiritually united. And then as time goes by, they're united in their soul. They're emotionally knit together. They love the same things. They feel the call of God to get married. They unite themselves together. They plan for the future. So united in spirit, united in soul. And then once they're married, they are united in body. So body, soul, and spirit all united but in the right order. We've had now for generations people that unite in body. And then they try to unite in soul. And they're never spiritually united. And they can't figure out why things don't work. We've got to do it the way God has said to do it. Exodus 20, 14 says, You shall not commit adultery. And in Mark 10, 5, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. How many genders are there? God settles that. And He also says, For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his, not girlfriend, but his wife. 
Tells you the order, doesn't it? And then the two of them shall become one flesh. That's a euphemism for the sexual relationship. And so then they are no longer two but one flesh. What order? What order? Sex comes after marriage. Marriage where you can have the child where the child is wanted, where the child to be loved, where the child to be raised, where both parents will be there for the child. That's the ideal situation and that's what we certainly ought to strive for. And what happens? It's been messed up for a long time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's that, Paul? That you should abstain from sexual immorality. We don't, and so we end up in these things. What are we going to do? And am I being punished with a child? Our former president, Barack Obama, said he didn't want his daughters to make a mistake and then be punished with a child. That's where we've come. We live in a culture of death because everything is out of order. We are selfish. It is all about us. We don't really care about anyone else, much less the baby that God has given us. And that brings me to the last thing, to think that where is our real power? And I think that back in the 1980 and... Uh, that era, we thought our power was in the ballot box. Now, I do think you ought to vote. You heard me say that. But that's not where our power is. The Bible says in Romans 1.16, which is the memory verse that the Bible school kids learned, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. And I want you to think about, this is what the Great Commission, the, uh, the practical aspect of it, what does the Great Commission do? Well, first of all, it brings glory to God. Whether anybody responds or receives Christ or not, it brings glory to Christ. His name is being properly spoken of. I mean, folks, think about how many times you hear God's name taken in vain anywhere you go, everywhere you go, in almost every situation. But what if the people of God like you and like me what if we were talking about Jesus in a positive way, in a powerful way, in a witnessing way, in an affirming way? What if we were lifting up and exalting the name of Christ everywhere we went? Then that would counteract the use of God's name in vain, which is blasphemy. Then you also think about something else. Think about what it would do as we are scattering seed of the gospel everywhere. I think it would make us more conscious of the way that we live. I'm probably going to be a little more careful about the way I live my life in front of my neighbor that I've witnessed to as opposed to the neighbor that I don't even know. I think maybe if I were more conscious that I was handing out tracts, I was talking to people about the Lord, more people than I could remember, it might cause me to put a guard on the way that I act, the way even that I drive. Who knows? That person that I honk at, that person that I pass in a rage, that I glare at, might be somebody I just shared Jesus with. I think it has a practical effect of causing us to think more godly and to be more holy in the way that we live. I think also, too, that as we think about the sharing of the gospel and uh, think about it in terms of planting and watering and reaping, we're always going to be praying and more conscious of God in our life and in everything that we do because we all could use more God consciousness, couldn't we? And as I think about this and I think about precious souls that I've witnessed to, I'm going to be praying for them and I'm going to be more dependent 
upon God instead of just living life for me. And is my life comfortable? See, a lot of people, they don't ever really pray or get serious about the things of God until their life is affected. Well, God calls us through the gospel to serve other people and to serve God himself. I think it makes us more dependent upon God. I think it's also humbling. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you know how many times that I have spoken to somebody and tried feebly to answer their questions and walked away just going, oh, I should know that. I should have done better. Why didn't I say this? Why didn't I think of this? But I'm like you. Sometimes I get a brain freeze. Sometimes I get nervous. I forget what to say. Somebody asked me something that I don't really know the answer to or I'm uncomfortable answering and I get kind of uptight about it. And then later when the pressure's up, ah, I should have thought of this. Do that all the time. You know why the Lord allows that to happen? To keep you humble. To remind you it's not about you. It's not about your gospel presentation. It's not about your ability to close the deal and draw the net. You don't do that anyway. God does that. And he takes your feeble, stammering tongue, your inept brain, and honors what you do. And as you do that, you receive grace. Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, and who couldn't use more grace? But as we move on and we think about the sinner, what about that person who hears the good news of Christ and they repent of their sins and they trust that what Jesus did on the cross paid for their sins in full, that he is the sovereign God who rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of God the Father and is going to return that uh, one day, and they put their trust, they transfer it from themselves, from their rituals, from their religion, from their own morality, and they transfer it to Christ. He is my righteousness, he's my Lord, and he's my Savior. Those people who really do that and believe that, the chances are going to be extremely rare that they would abort a baby. And so here's what I would say. The more people get saved, the more we're sharing the gospel, it has a positive practical effect on all of us that results in a better and more holy society in which we live. You see, what I would say is, if you really are concerned about babies dying in, the, in their mother's wombs, Am I opposed to you going out on a sidewalk and praying in front of an abortion clinic? No, not at all. Am I opposed to you being involved in passing legislation that will uh, preserve the life of the unborn? No, not at all. But I would say this. Don't ever forget, child of God, the greatest power you have is Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the dunamis, the dynamite, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. And I think what we see in our society today, as it rottens before our very eyes, is that there's not as much light out there as we ought to have. Because you and I, Jesus said, are the light of the world. And there's not enough salt to slow down the spoilage of this world, as they did in Bible times, by salting down meat. Because you and I are salt 
many times that has lost its savor. So what good are we? And I want to make a call today. If you've never been saved, repent and trust the Lord as your Savior and do it today. If you have trusted Christ and you have not followed Him in believer's baptism, then get that. Talk to Brother Chad today. Let's get that scheduled. Let's get going. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's the first step in obedience. Follow the Lord in baptism. If you're not a part of a local church, you need to get a part to be a part of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching local church. You're welcome here if that's the case. Talk to Brother Chad about that. Get that settled. Plug in. And don't be just a member in name only. Plug in. Be here and be a part and pray about things. And when the harvest comes in, you get a reward in the harvest. And as you live your life, share the gospel. Share the gospel with people. Minister to people. There's enough judgment going on. Now we need some ministry to people. Adopt a baby. Support a crisis pregnancy center. Help an unwed mother. Everything you do like that will enhance and decorate the message that we have. Makes it more appealing. And as we do this... Pray for the salvation of those you witness to that they might be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That they might go from being a child of the devil to being a child of God indwelt by the Spirit of God living a holy life for the glory of God. And there can be one more person in the fight, one more soldier wearing the army, uh, the armor and as they are married and as they have children of their own and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, one more family, one more family to counteract what is going on in the world today. And with that, I say, thank God for Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I also say just as fervently, may God help us to think rightly and not disengage, for the battle is not over. But the even better news is, the battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's. Heavenly Father, may the witness of this message go where it needs to go. To help somebody who is pregnant before marriage and they're scared to death, help them, Lord, to choose life and help them to do what is right in this situation. For those who have had abortions, and we may not even know it, would you remind them today that Jesus paid for that sin and your grace is sufficient for that sin? For all of the rulings that are going to go before our Supreme Court would you give those men and wisdom, the women wisdom to rule rightly about these things? Would you cause Christians to be motivated, to be involved, to help these babies we say we love, but when they're born, 
And there, are, there is a, a mother who can't take care of them. May we step up and may we be a part of helping them and saving them and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Father, may our hearts always think like you think about these issues. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.